0: Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, as we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 this week. Last week we covered 1 through 16 and kind of this big swath in order to pick up the full meaning of the whole text there. And then this week and next week we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 by themselves because in verses 4 through 6 there is this kind of confession. We're going to be breaking it down looking at its individual pieces. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word again, we pray that as we come to your holy word, that we would seek out those things that we would put in front of it, even our own words that we deem more true or more powerful than yours. Lord, we pray even that you would strike those things down, that you would remove them from us, that your word would be the sole guide for faith and practice in our lives, and that you would change us even now as it is read and preached. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as this text has to do with unity under a common set of doctrines, it made me think of our own standards for the church, the Westminster standards. In the 1640s in England and Scotland, there was a whole lot of upheaval in the land. England was in the middle of a civil war, and Scotland was also split with a group called the Covenanters in Scotland that would side with the English Parliament and the rest of Scotland and Ireland were fighting with King Charles I at the time. And the English and Scottish Parliament, in order to find peace and reformation in the church, appointed a group of 121 local clergy and laity to draft a document That sole purpose would be to unify the church under common doctrine and under common authority that every church could be able to look at these doctrines and say, yes, we agree upon those things. This document would later be called the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with the larger and shorter catechisms. And these documents were later used by several other groups to draft similar documents of unified faith in an attempt to bring the people of God in Great Britain and then out further from that in the near future together. Today, many churches in the world use these same documents, or others like it, in order to do the same kind of thing. And you may be wondering, why would we do that? We have the Scriptures, right? Why can't we just unite under them? Yes, absolutely, we have the Scriptures, and we should unite under them. The question immediately becomes, what do they teach? And so the task given to those people who were brought together to craft these documents was to do just that, to, to summarize the Bible's teachings on may, many major issues and to bring people together under them. And it's why we need these documents, because we are sinful. Rather than wanting unity, we want division. This started all the way back in the garden. And it starts with, and it continued on with kingdoms and churches and so forth. And in Jesus, there is unity and hope. But with sin, there is division and despair. Without Christ, we seek only to serve ourselves with no hope of seeing past the end of our noses. But with Christ, we desire to see things brought together, to be made new. However, we still struggle with those desires, to see things be in our own way. So as we look at this passage today in Ephesians, we're, again, we're looking at something that we've already considered in verses 1 through 16, but I wanted to come back because it speaks of this unity that we have in Christ under one common doctrine and belief, belief about what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear. But sometimes it doesn't seem that way because of our own lack of understanding and even because of our own desires for the Bible to say something else. In this passage, Paul lays out a few of the most common, important things for us to consider as we consider what it means to be one people of God. So with that, I'm going to break it down into just the first three clauses of this confession, one body, one spirit, and one hope that belongs to our call. So let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians four, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father over all or of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So for a little bit of context and background as to where we all are, remember Paul is instructing the church concerning the relationship between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians and how the Gentiles are to be admitted into the flock and the church was to be one united people of God. There wasn't to be any of these factions in the church. Because of this, Paul is urging us at the beginning of chapter 4 to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. The church must put up a unified front in a world that hates us because they hate our Lord. The first century Christians surely found this out and were finding it out even as Paul was writing these words. Christians today in other parts of the world know this full well, also it serves us nothing to be broken into factions fighting amongst one another. Paul gives us a short list of things that unite us in Christ. For the early church, this would have served as a kind of rallying point for them. But also a dividing line for those who would profess Jesus with their lips, but deny him and the essential doctrines of the faith. And so I want to caution us as we consider these doctrines to remember that there are different interpretations on some of these issues concerning the body and the spirit and the hope that we have. And so there's some room for discussion amongst believers, kind of an in-house discussion, if you will, in order to edify and grow the church. But there's also a distinct line between the very clear teachings of Scripture and the false doctrines that man would seek to use to divide the church for his own gain. And that brings us to the first point, one body. This refers to the one body of Christ, which is referred to elsewhere as the church or the people of God all throughout Scripture, even back in Genesis. You see this all throughout the book of Genesis. Abraham is promised that his people will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. So turn with me to Genesis 22. I just picked one passage. You could just go to several in Genesis. I always like the opportunity to go to Genesis as well. It's just fun. So concerning that idea of one people... Concerning that prophecy going all the way back to the book of Genesis, even further back than 22. Let's look at verses 15 through 18, Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God will have a people for himself from the nations of the world and from that offspring From Abraham's offspring, which ultimately points to our Lord Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. One people of God. Paul has made this very clear, even in this epistle, but he makes it clear in the rest of his writings. We studied through the book of Galatians and we saw that very thing come through. As you read through the Old Testament and continue to read through the Old Testament, even as we've been studying 1 Samuel together in Sunday school, the distinction between God's people and the rest of the world is very plain. As God even brought this people out of the land of Egypt and had a special set of rules that would even make this distinction more clear, that the people of God are much different than the other people in the world. But with the coming of Christ, many of those rules concerning the temple and cleanliness and all those things that Jesus brought with him, these were fulfilled and made complete because they pointed to him. They pointed to his completed work on the cross and his resurrection. So in Christ, this people that are still here, that's still retained in the New Testament and expanded not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to anyone who professes faith in Christ alone, they are called the people of of God, the body of Christ. Confession of Faith, chapter 25, part 1, says this concerning the church, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, and shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Elect from the foundations of the earth those whom God has chosen to be according to his pleasure and his wills. We've learned in Ephesians chapter one. There is one people and in that one people no one group stands out among the rest as having some sort of special privilege that the other ones should recognize. As Paul teaches against that here in Ephesians, he taught against it in Galatians, he taught about it as we read in the book of Acts as well. That each of us, no matter who we are, no matter what family we've been born into or what nation we've been born into, need Jesus to be saved. And in Jesus, we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We don't need a vicar of Christ, some representation here on earth as the Roman Catholic Church sees in the Pope. But we have direct access to Jesus because of his resurrection. And we, the church, are his representatives here on earth, called his ambassadors to a world that desperately needs a savior. It's important for us to know that Paul mentions this idea of having one body before he talks about other parts of his profession. It's not because it's more important than those other things, but rather it helps us to understand that the Christian life is not a solo life. So often Christians become so consumed with their personal Christian experience that they miss that we, as Christians, are part of this greater whole. And over and over in Scripture, it is not the individual who is addressed, but the body. The whole body of Christ is taught, encouraged, admonished, and disciplined. Not as individuals, but as a body. Yes, Absolutely, the individual is important. Each individual must make a profession of faith to Jesus, yet an important part of that profession of faith is an acknowledgement that you are now part of a larger group. You are necessarily a part of that larger group. And this is a con- this is contrary to the push in modern Christianity, which focuses on the individual and their preferences and their feelings and their experiences. We are united by necessity and primarily through the fact that there is one Spirit who lives in us all. and That brings us to the next point, one Spirit. Here Paul refers to the Holy Spirit, his works of redemption that continually work for the sanctification of the lives of believers that he inhabits. The Spirit's work is found throughout this book in particular, as we've been reading so far up through from chapter 1 and 4. We've learned about the Spirit's work and our salvation, what he's done to bring about salvation, even serving as our guarantee for Christ's promises in our lives. The rest of the Bible, of course, we see his work throughout, proceeding both from the Father and the Son to do their work in the hearts of their people. Interestingly enough, in the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, which we are a part of, there used to be a chapter on the Holy Spirit in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They added it sometime in the earliest early 20th century because of some concerns that there wasn't a special chapter on the Holy Spirit, but we actually voted to remove that within the last 10 years because just like we see in the Bible... The Spirit's work is found throughout. It is found all throughout. And so we, we took that out as it was unnecessary. The Spirit first worked in our hearts to make us alive in Christ. And he continues to work in us to make us more like Jesus. He's testifying to our own spirits even. As we read in Romans chapter 8, continually reminding us that we are in Christ. We see that written in the Confession of Faith Chapter 18, part 2. It says this. This certainty, speaking of our life in Christ, is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the Spirit of Adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God, which spirit is the earnest or the guarantee of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1, we learn that the spirit is like God's earnest money concerning our salvation given to us as a surety that he is indeed going to follow through with his promises in our life. Ultimately, of course, to call us home and to live with him for all eternity, And so when the apostle in verse four of Ephesians four says one spirit, he is not speaking merely of the idea that there is indeed one spirit of God, but he is also saying that this spirit of God is indivisible, and unable to be diminished. So what do I mean by that? The spirit of God is given to believers in the same measure as every believer There is no smaller amount of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God cannot be diminished and then enhanced in another believer. One of the ways we attempt to pervert the Gospel is by thinking that if we do a certain thing or speak certain words, we can somehow invoke the Spirit's power in our lives. Like He's some genie that just needs to be rubbed on in order for us to kind of release His power seeing instances of the Spirit come upon someone in Scripture, as we've read in 1 Samuel and other places where the Spirit has rushed upon people in those passages, we think that, well, maybe I can do that for my own life, that I can somehow invoke the Spirit, that if I can just harness God's power, then He can do stuff for me. This is heresy. This heresy continues to permeate the church, and is the idea that someone, or that we can somehow attain a higher level of the spirit's influence in our lives that if we can just say certain things or do certain things for him that we can somehow trap him and harness him to heal the sick or to prophesy or to to speak not say anything at all but just kind of this talking gibberish this is a common belief in christianity and not just in this in the church in america But in the church, in the world, and understand brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not, uh, this is not special. This is not unique. This is man's attempt to control God, something he's been doing since the garden. This is pretty normal for us, but understand this too. God cannot and will not be controlled. And if you think this is a small issue, just listen to someone who thinks that they can manipulate the Spirit in their life. And what you might expect to hear is you might expect to hear someone who's conceited, someone who thinks that they're all powerful, but instead that's not what you hear. You usually hear a person who lives in absolute fear. They lack the Spirit's movement in their lives, or they sense that maybe someone else has a stronger dose of the Holy Spirit. As if there is such a thing that by looking at someone else, well, they obviously have more Holy Spirit than I do. So perhaps something is wrong with me. Perhaps I've wronged God in some way and that I just need to now make my relationship right with God by doing these things or giving this money or whatever. As if Christ never did anything for me and now I must earn the Spirit's favor. They don't live this life of conceit. Instead, they live a life of fear, thinking that they that God is angry with them, even in Christ. This goes completely against the spirit of unity that we have in Christ, that Paul is teaching about. To think that God hasn't supplied all of our needs in Christ Jesus is to cast down the hope that we have in Him and to wait for something else. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have no other hope but Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the last point, the hope that belongs to our call. As Paul speaks of this in verse 4, the one hope that belongs to our call. What is this hope that belongs to our call? Well, I think the Heidelberg Catechism, another common catechism used by Reformed churches the world over, really demonstrates this well in the first question. So I'll read the question and part of the answer. Says this, what is thy only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with His precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. The hope that belongs to our cause, that we have a Savior who is alive, and that one day He intends to call us home. And He is even now watching over us, interceding for us. And understand this hope is not just a future hope. And I think for a lot of Christians we this is where we get this wrong. This is not just a future hope, so that we need to hide ourselves Right, We need to hide in our homes and and be afraid and hope that Jesus is going to come back today. Absolutely, we hope that he will come back today. But we have no fear if he doesn't. Because in Christ, we believe that the original command of God's image bearers, which was to go and to bear fruit and to multiply and fill the earth, we believe that that is very much still alive and well. And this isn't simply a command to have children and raise them in the Lord. It is that. But it is also a command to go into the world. How did Jesus rephrase this commandment? Go into the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that God's Word commands. First and foremost, to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. And to be saved by the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. The hope that we have says that the world that we currently see is not the way that it should be. In fact, it's not the way that it will be. So as Christians, we get to be a part of that. We get to see redemption come to these little pockets of the world that we live in and work in. We get to see the work of God's people bring about the redemption that he is doing. We get to see and experience the glimpses of Jesus, as he says, making all things new. When Jesus said, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, we believe that and we believe that it's right here, right now. Yes, we look forward to a future complete fulfillment of this but we see that work of redemption now on earth and in Christ no matter where we meet for worship on Sunday the hope is that we have is that Christ is doing that in our lives now and forever and that unifies us as one body of Christ. While here we get to relish in the hope that this world can and will be renewed. There are various Interpretations of how the end times will play out, but ultimately we know that Jesus is coming back and that He will reign. Even now His kingdom goes forth to all the four corners of the earth. We see this in Revelation 21. Turn with me to Revelation 21. And understand, as we read the book of Revelation, we're reading a book that was written to first century Christians in the midst of persecution. They didn't need hope for some future time. They needed hope for then and right then. And so understand, as we read these eight verses that we're going to read, that it's not only our future hope, but it is our right now hope. And so let's look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as we read this, this offers us hope for today. For those of us who are his, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more mourning. The former things are gone. The hope that we have is that he is making all things new. And he started with those of us who have been made alive in Christ. But understand the warning here too, for those whose hope is something else, for those who have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, there are words of warning, for those who continue in their sin do not trust Christ and in his righteousness, instead they will inherit a portion in the lake of fire for eternity. And so the question for us today as we come to this text is, what are we placing our hope in? If Paul Paul says that we have one hope that belongs to our call, what is that for you? Placing your hope in anything but Jesus means that you are numbered among those that Jesus called cowardly, detestable, and faithless, whose portion will be in the lake of fire. And if that is you this morning... Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is only one name under heaven by which men and women can be saved, and it is that name. He is the only way, truth, and life to the Father. Call upon His name. But for the church, even for us who are in Christ, the question for us is, what are we hoping in? A song that we sing a bit here that we are familiar with, so our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have no other hope than the righteousness of Christ. And the singer continues, and he says, "I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name." You've probably sang those songs a lot. And you wonder what are you singing about? What's talking about a building, a frame? Jesus is the cornerstone is what we are called, or what he's called, and we are to place our hope in him and him alone to lean on anything else, any other structure, even how sweet it seems, money, power, relationships, any kind of worldly security, these things are all crumbling down around us at a rapid rate, and we see it, and we know. The man who built his house upon the sand saw it come down around him, but the one who built his house upon the cornerstone, the rock that is Jesus, his house stood firm. So church, the question is, what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in to build his church here? Are we trusting in to build the church in Murray? Who are we trusting in even as it comes to the salvation of those many hundreds and thousands that go to school here at Murray State? What about in your own business, your family, your circle of friends? Who are we trusting in to do the work? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I challenge you to trust in Jesus alone, the cornerstone, the one hope that we have been called to. Repent of those things that you place hope in besides Jesus. Call out to him, our one hope. Seek the one Spirit's guidance in your life for wisdom and understanding. And let us, as the body of Christ at Redeemer Community Church, go forth and see the Lord work redemption in our lives and in our community. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we understand these words, that we are one body, that we have in us one spirit, and that we have been called to this one hope that is salvation in you, Lord, we pray that we can rest upon that hope, that in fact we would have no other hope but you. All other things are passing away. Lord, help us to trust in the one who will not pass away, in fact, who we will spend an eternity with. Lord, help us to rest alone in you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand now as we sing our response to God's word.